a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. You hear about uh, what Pelosi said? She's got uh, she's got some arrows left in her quiver. Yeah, uh, well, first off, I only knew about that phrase quiver from uh, Frozen. I wouldn't have known. Uh, I, my, my archery lexicon is not robust. Uh, uh, yeah, she says she's got an arrow left in the quiver and that it could, that arrow, that tool left in the toolbox could include a uh, potential impeachment of President Trump again or maybe A.G. Barr. We're going to talk about that later on uh, because it drives me crazy. Can't believe she'd say it. Uh, and if if she has supporters rallying around her uh, to do so, either you know within the House or without, uh, it's nasty stuff. It's nasty. All right. Uh, and, you know, you know, as soon as the news broke on Friday, as soon as the news broke that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had left us here and had passed away, that the politics began immediately. And as I admitted myself, I was right there in the midst of it. Uh, you know, I in my last life, I worked out in Washington, D.C., and uh, you better believe it that as soon as that first tweet went around sharing the unfortunate news, uh, we were looking to the future. We were looking to, OK, who's going to fill that seat? What's the timing of it? How will it be received? And uh, beyond my little text message group, uh, you look at the talking heads on the 24 hour news uh, and the, the claim there is that everything is different now. Everything is different that everything that had been considered politically, everything that was informing your decision come November 3rd, it's all upended now. And I don't know if I agree. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, joining me now, a good friend of mine, Boyd Matheson, host of Inside Sources, opinion editor for the Deseret News, smart thing, smart guy. What, what, what do I call you? A genius in all things politics and otherwise? Something smart like that. Smart guy? Yeah. <laughs> smart guy, Smart Alec, I think, is a little more accurate, but. Does this upend everything? Are we looking at an entirely different world than we woke up to, say, Friday morning? Um, I think there are some things that are different. Um, I think you were right in terms of saying it doesn't have to be different. Uh, But that's going to come down to a we the people issue. Part of the reason why uh, these court battles have become so big is because Congress is not doing its job. Sure, Congress has abdicated all of its power and authority to the executive branch. The executive branch, all too happy to take that power and use it, both Democrats and Republicans. And so then they do that. They they do executive orders. They do wild things in terms of the, the agencies and the regulatory stuff. And so then the citizens only recourse when they go to their member of Congress. The member of Congress says, well, hey, I, I didn't do that. Go go yell at the uh, State Department. Go right. yell at the uh, you know FDA or whoever. Uh, and so the only recourse they have left is the law. And so they file a lawsuit, and so they work their way through. And both the liberals and the conservative movements have done this to the umpteenth degree. Whenever in doubt, file a lawsuit because you just might need it later. Uh, and again, so that comes back to where? We the people. Right. Uh, how we vote matters, and we have to get to the point where Cong- we hold Congress accountable for doing their job. If they did that, the executive branch couldn't do a whole lot about it. Uh, and then the courts get to do it what they do best, which is – Judge the law. Right. 
going back to Friday night. <clears throat> Friday night when I get caught up in this flurry of well, what's going to happen next and what are the politics going to look like, I thought, well, what does Boyd think? And so I sent you a little note uh, you know, because kind of as soon as you hear the news, you re- you really have to make yeah. a decision. Do you think that now this what? should move right away quickly? Yeah. Should this wait till after the election? Should it wait till after January? What's the appropriate timing in all this? And so I, you know, in the in the evening hours of Friday, I'm trying to sort out my own beliefs there. And so I'm looking at this, uh, you know, this talking head, that talking head. I'm looking back in history, and I, I was curious what what you thought. And so I shared with you just a quick observation of mine. And instead of, and I have to thank you for this. Uh, be, because instead of engaging, you know, the where I was trying to entice you, uh, <laughs> you, you sent back uh, just a hyperlink. And this hyperlink <laughs> was to uh, an article that you had written, uh, the headline for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oneness Never Was Meant to Be Sameness. And in it, you, you highlight, uh, you know, this famous relationship yeah. that we've become so familiar with, the one between uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. And, uh, and, and I sat there and I read it. Uh, I, I muted the. Here's the thing. I've got uh, on the TV. I can watch four. Got your four things. Yeah, I have yep. four <laughs> channels. I can watch it once. And you scroll back and forth yep. and look around. I muted all four, uh, and I sat and read uh, what you had written. And the, the question at the end of my reading was, okay, if I let's say I am uh, if I am Scalia, uh, who is my Ginsburg? And I was thinking through like my friend groups, my peer groups, yeah. and I don't know if I have someone uh, in my in my group like that. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I certainly, you know, in this line of work, I'm exposed to people who disagree with me all the time, uh, and I do seek those views right, out. Right. But do I have someone who, uh, you know, away from the theatrics of talk radio and uh, in the loud noise of the newsroom, uh, that I can just shoot the breeze with and share comfortably and safely uh, a differing position? Yeah. I didn't know. I, I I need to find someone like that. Yeah, we we all need to find someone like that it's uh, it's part of how we actually progress as a society it's uh, critical to the essence of the country in my view uh, and that's what uh, justice ginsburg and justice scalia were able to do uh, i love 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 the way that justice ginsburg eulogized her buddy her shopping buddy antonin scalia and said we disagreed completely on our interpretation of the written text but we were absolutely united and I love this, in our reverence for the court and its place in this country. Uh, That's powerful. If we could just get to respect and reverence, those are two pretty big things. And then you can have all kinds of conversations. Uh, I had uh, on air today uh, Basil Smeekel, a professor from Columbia, used to be the head of the Democratic Party in New York. Oh, my gosh. That's like a Uh, double. That's like a— (laughs) Yeah. He he and I are often paired against each other on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, and they usually say, okay, we got someone from the left and someone from the right, and they expect fireworks, and we agree all the time. And it you know it drives the producers crazy. It drives it baffles the host. It's like, well, so you guys say you you agree on the principle of this hmm. thing, uh, and it's this big shocking moment. And I think the challenge for all of us is to make them not shocking moments. Uh, Scalia and Ginsburg friendship should not be a surprise in the United States of America. It should be the standard. We all need to have people in our lives that we can disagree, that we can, again, we always talk about it. It's not about disagreeing less. It's disagreeing better. Yeah. And you start with reverence for each other. You start with respect. And if you start with those two principles first, you can create a friendship that'll last. You might even find yourself with a shopping buddy. There you go. Uh 
Boyd, I'm so grateful to you for writing that. Uh, it helped me out over the weekend. Uh, but but listen, that Lots time to come. M- Monday, I'm, I'm in it now. All right, I don't feel guilty of speculating now. You made me feel guilty Friday. Uh, Good. I'm, I'm, I'm into it now. No, actually, no guilt. We don't do guilt. Oh, okay, no fine. Guilt. All right, all right. Only elevate. That's just me. Uh, listen, I want to ask you a procedural question before before I let you go. Um, you heard me giving Speaker Pelosi a hard time as I started this segment here. Uh, she has, you know, voiced or at least hasn't taken off the table uh, uh, an, an option available to her, which is to bring about uh, impeachment proceedings against the president or A.G. Barr. And that, of course, you know, as we look at it and try to understand, OK, what's the point of that? It could then tie up the hands of uh, the Senate who would then need to, you know, hear this, and then all senators need to be present uh, on the floor of the Senate. Uh, that, you know, precluding, you know, members of the Justice Committee from, uh, you know, from, you know, starting yeah. the, the proceedings for uh, confirming a nomination. My, my question to you is: do, do articles of impeachment in the House does that compel action by the Senate? Does the Senate have to immediately uh, take up a, a trial? No, they, it can. <laughs> like most things that come across from the House, it can sit on Mitch McConnell's desk for I think I think they have ninety days or something like that that they can uh, uh, before they have to act or are compelled to act on. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but it's at least thirty, sixty, ninety days uh, out that they have to act on those articles of impeachment. But it's not an immediate thing. It does not trigger an automatic convening of the entire Senate and the, uh, and you know some kind of trial. Uh, and and so to me that again that comes back to how do we disagree? Is that yeah. is that respect? Is that respect for the law? Is that respect for the process? Is that respect for the institutions? Um, that sounds like you know power and politics, uh, and that's what the American people are exhausted by. Yeah, uh, and that's what we got to transcend. That's what we got to get past. Yeah. Uh, listen, boy, thank you so much. Thanks for setting me straight. It was uh, it was a treat to read through your article on Friday. Uh, and if I'm honest, I look forward to navigating all this stuff as it comes to us over the next few months. It's going to be wild. Going to be fascinating. Thank you. Thanks. All right, quick break. When we return, Debbie Dejanovic uh, in studio. I'm just talking to all the other shows. I, I just need I need help today, and so I'm knocking on all my friends' doors, saying, "Hey, let me uh, let me uh, share in your brilliance and excellence." Debbie Dejanovic next. She earlier today spoke with Mia Love. President Trump has made it known that he will be nominating a woman. Does it have to be that way, and why? That's up next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. I want to take you right now to the floor of the United States Senate where Mitch McConnell is speaking, majority leader, Republican. But we'll hear what he has to say uh, and stick with that for a moment. Justice Stevens' entire confirmation process could have been played out twice, twice between now and November 3rd with time to spare. And Justice Ginsburg herself could have been confirmed twice between now and the end of the year with time to spare. The Senate has more than sufficient time to process a nomination. History and precedent make that perfectly clear. Others want to claim this situation is exactly analogous to Justice Scalia's passing in 2016, and so we should not proceed until January. This is also completely false. Here's what I said on the Senate floor the very first session, the day after Justice Scalia passed, quote, the Senate has not filled a vacancy arising in an election year when there was a divided government since 1888, almost 130 years ago. 
Here's what I said the next day when I spoke to the press for the first time on the subject. You have to go back to 1888 when Grover Cleveland was president to find the last time a vacancy created in a presidential election year was approved by Senate of a different party. As of then, only six prior times in American history had a Supreme Court vacancy arisen in a presidential election year, and the president sent a nomination that year to the Senate of the opposite party. The majority of those times, the outcome was exactly what happened in 2016, no confirmation. The historically normal outcome when you have divided government. President Obama was asking Senate Republicans for an unusual favor that had last been granted nearly 130 years before then. But voters had explicitly elected our majority to check and balance the end of his presidency. So we stuck with the basic norm. Oh, and by the way, in so doing, our majority did precisely what Democrats had indicated they would do themselves. In 1992, Democrats controlled the Senate, opposite President Bush 41. Then Senator Joe Biden chaired the Judiciary Committee. All right, we're going to step away from that. We'll continue to monitor it, though. If we hear from other senators, of course, there are those who are uh, kind of on the fence. We are unsure how they may react to uh, a confirmation hearing. Would they support? Would they be against? Uh, included in that pool of the uncertain uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, if you heard Mitch McConnell there, uh, he illustrated something that I was touching on earlier, which was the will of the voter. The voters elected a Republican-controlled Senate in 2016 to be a check and balance on the president. And so to uh, not hear the Merrick Garland nomination of President Obama, that paired with the actions of today is not, it is not an illustration of hypocrisy, but rather an illustration of the Senate uh, responding to the will of the voters that sent them to office. You may disagree. Uh, I'd like to hear from you uh, either way. 57500 is the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Uh, I want to now move on to another interesting element of this situation. We have learned, you know, after there was a b- bunch of question marks over the weekend, uh, will the president nominate? Will he not? He very quickly made it known that he he did intend to nominate, and he went a step further, uh, making it known that his nomination will likely be a woman. It will be a highly qualified person. It will be a woman that we choose, and uh, the nomination will be put forth sometime next week. That was from last week, and right now our best understanding is that Friday or Saturday we should get a name. And there's a short list of Supreme Court contenders, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Barbara Lagoa, and Allison Rushing. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett we're going to speak about later on in the program. She was here in Utah just a year ago. But the question is, uh, is there what is the significance of Trump announcing that he will be nominating a woman? Does that matter? Helping me with that conversation uh, is uh, resident woman Debbie Dejanovic, uh, host of Dave and Dejanovic each morning here on KSL News Radio. Uh, Debbie, thanks for joining me. You had an interesting conversation today with Mia Love. Representative Mia Love called the show, and the question was. Is uh, Trump in a position that he can only nominate a woman? My answer to that is absolutely. Here's why I believe that, uh, Lee, is first of all, there's three reasons why. First of all is uh, no one in the Senate that I can think of is going to stand up and say, I don't want a woman to sit 
on the Supreme Court to replace a woman who just passed away who served on the Supreme Court. I can't imagine that anybody in the Senate would oppose uh, a female nomination unless there's a huge skeleton in the closet. The second reason is his favorability rating among women, particularly suburban uh, women, is really uh, quite low compared to what Biden. He's he's eleven percent behind Biden he, when it comes. He called those he called those women housewives the other day, right? And that's part of the reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps we can forgive President Bush for his Twitter blunder when he called uh, out suburban housewives. Um, you know, they're, we're considered homemakers now. Mm. Uh, housewives is a term from the nineteen fifties. Ah, I think it would go a long way for him to nominate. The other reason is is if he nominates uh, Barbara Lagoa from Florida, who's been, um, you know, served many, many years uh, in Florida on the in the courts there, um, he could potentially secure 29 electoral delegates from the state of Florida. And if you remember back to 2016, uh, he barely eked out a win in Florida over um, Hillary Clinton. So here's what Mia Love had to say, Representative Mia Love on the show earlier when we asked her that question, does he have to pick a woman? I think it would be a huge mistake to not not to nominate a woman. And I want everybody to know that nominating a woman doesn't mean that you're settling. There are incredible women out there that are as capable, even more capable. So giving a woman a chance to be in that position would mirror what America looks like. If you have a half the amount of women that are in the Supreme Court justice as there are men, that that would be a more reflective of what the United States looks like. So, yes, I would say absolutely he should do everything he can to find an incredible, capable woman, which there are plenty out there. Now, her response there and the points that you brought up were all tactically minded. Uh, in terms of, you know, bolstering support in certain areas, uh, securing Florida, should he uh, nominate uh, Barbara, Barbara Lagoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to add on that, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the president is right now being lobbied very intensely by uh, by leaders in Florida. The, the governor and others are all saying, hey, this is you got to pick this one. You got to pick this one. And uh, and so tactically and strategically and politically, uh, I, I hear all of this. Uh, but if we're able to set this all aside, if we're able to set politics aside, which, of course, we can't, uh, the, the decision should and will be based on merit, correct? It will be based on merit, based on the merits of the woman that he selects. <laughs> Look, I remember a Supreme Court and studying a Supreme Court that was made up um, solely of men. Uh, the day that Sandra Day O'Connor from uh, my home state of Arizona was nominated and then um, uh, went on to secure the first spot on the Supreme Court as a woman. Um, and now we had until last Friday, we had three women on the Supreme Court. It balances out the process. Uh, there's no question that I would rather see three women and six men on the Supreme Court right now compared to two women and seven men on the Supreme Court. I, I do. I do hear that. And I agree with that. Uh, and when, when, when Mia Love talked about like the, the percentage breakdown of men versus women in the United States, you, you, we don't see that reflected in the we Supreme don't. Court. And also there are so many decisions that face the Supreme Court every single day that involve the rights of women. Um, it doesn't matter um, what race you are. It affects you. And uh, I think that is even more reason to make sure that he secures a, a female for the nomination for the to replace uh, Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg. Now, you, you talked, too, in your, in your second point about how some of the Democrat senators would have a difficult time challenging a female nominee. Uh, 
I absolutely think that it was just, look, after, I'll be honest with you, after Me Too movement, Lee, I felt more empowered as a woman for all of the things that I'd gone through just in the profession that I've been in. So imagine being in the other professions as well. And I think it's really a difficult time right now for Democrats or Republicans to stand up and say, if everything being equal, if her qualifications are the same, if her schooling, she's been, you know, number one in her class or whatever the benchmark is. For somebody to stand up and say, I'm sorry, you're a woman, you're not qualified for this position, it would just be a career a career ender for them, potentially. So they're not going to take that chance right now. It's never been a better time for uh, a confirmation for a female to the uh, Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I, I hear you there. I, I can't imagine anyone in this era or in any era, uh, regardless of political party, Stop. From the, any well, era, you're talking. Well, okay, okay. Right. We'll, let's not go. <laughs> we'll go back too far. But from, but from the floor of the of the Supreme Court right. or in the Judiciary Hearing Committee, I can't imagine a, a justice being nominated, a female just being, or someone being nominated to replace a vacancy on the Supreme Court, a, a female being told because you're a woman you can't pull well, this off. Well, think back to the 1950s after Ginsburg had graduated. I think she tied first in her, her law class at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And 1959, she was told, uh, you know, trying to look for a job in New York that, uh, sorry, but the law firms here aren't hiring females. You oh, don't I t- I told, have to go back that far. Well, no, I, I, and I'm thinking, talking specifically about about Supreme Court justice nominees. I... I I could see her. I could see any female nominee right now being nominated by a Republican president being uh, just absolutely, absolutely demolished by Democratic senators, regardless of their gender. Oh, because of the political, absolutely. And, and there are examples, I think, of Democrats right now going after women very aggressively of the of opposing ideological views. Kelly McEnany puts up with this stuff every day. Well, and. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think sometimes the politics just absolutely takes over the the landscape and and, and people don't think through what they're saying before they've said it. Um, And it's unfortunate. And I think that goes back to what Boyd Matheson and you were discussing just before I walked in this room is that, you know, we need to have much more understanding um, and acceptance of one another uh, and and put the political wars aside um, because – there's no question right now in my mind that there needs to be a female nominee, Democrats, independents, libertarians. We all need to get on board. Republicans need to get on board with the idea of having another female Supreme Court justice. There's just no way around it. And I'm going to tell you, President Trump will nominate a female either this Friday or this Saturday, and it potentially could move the dial on his uh, polling numbers. That's the last word. We'll leave it at that. Debbie, I could, go, I could hang out with you all afternoon. We're, looking at, we're two minutes late. We're going to get yelled at by the bosses. <laughs> uh, listen, we're going to take a break right now. Uh, one of those potential nominees was here in Utah just last year. Amy Coney Barrett spoke before the Founders Day dinner at Brigham Young University Law School. Uh, we're going to speak to a professor that spoke alongside her next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.